Yeah, so on our panel, uh, we have uh, Chavez. He's a resident of South Africa and Swaziland. And uh, he is a student at um, I must read, NMBU uh, at Aarhus. Uh, he works at the, as a journalist uh, at home. And uh, he's uh, the president of the Ubuntu African Student, student Association. Marianne uh, Milstein. She's a researcher at OsloMet. Uh, she has done extensive research on inequality and, um, and youth in South Africa. Um, and uh, our third panelist is Jan Speed, a uh, journalist and web editor for Bistans Aktuelt. Um, so before we start with the questions, I thought I'd just introduce some recent South African history uh, for those of you who don't know the, the recent history there. So um, 29 years ago, South Africa, uh, or apartheid ended, at least the legislative aspects of it. Um, 25 years ago, they had the first uh, democratic elections uh, where the ANC was uh, elected into government. Uh, and the ANC has governed the country since then, the African National Congress. Um, and uh, for the last uh, 10 years, uh, the government has uh, been led by uh, President Jacob Zuma, and it has been a very uh, tumultuous or uh, scandalous government, uh, including uh, uh, many corruption scandals, uh, also uh, shooting of uh, striking mine workers, 34 striking mine workers, uh, extensive police brutality. Um, yeah. uh, it's been a very problematic government. And now, in 2019, uh, South Africa had another uh, national election, and uh, and the ANC, under now Cyril Ramaphosa, um, as president, was re-elected uh, again. So that is basically the circumstances in which he is elected, and I think he was see supposed to be seen as a rejuvenation of the ANC, and um, sort of save them. Anyway. Um, so, uh, my first question is to you, uh, Jan. Uh, so, what is the state of the ANC after the recent elections? Did they lose any strongholds? Uh, and what was the challenge for them? And also, in which ways did the various political parties um, appeal to the youth vote or, or to young people? Any, any election in, in the world um, with when you're the ANC, the governing party, got 57, 58% of the vote. Um, the opposition was split between the Democratic Alliance with 22% and the uh, um, economic freedom fighters with around 10% of the vote. In any other part of the world, that would be a fantastic result for the, for the governing party. Just basically, you still got massive control. But in, in South Africa, it was actually a partial defeat since we actually f since the ANC fell under 60% for the first time at, at the national level. And what is significant here is that if it hadn't been for the popularity of the present president, Cyril Ramaphosa, they probably would have ended up at around 40% of the vote. And it is quite striking in a way that they've, they've they lost not power, but they lost at least support in two, two very major areas. In Gauteng, which is the very populous areas around Johannesburg and Pretoria, they 
ANC just managed to scrape above 50% of the vote. In KwaZulu-Natal, which was a massively dominated, ANC-dominated province, but it's also the fiefdom of Jacob Zuma, they lost 10% of the vote and ended up around 53%. So the ANC basically lost support in very crucial areas. The maybe more interesting thing with the whole election was how many people refrained from voting, that the, that the election support went down from in the 70s to the mid-60s. And the number of youth who even registered to vote was very low. And that probably is the biggest challenge going forward. Yeah, it's quite interesting because South Africa has been a, uh, historically a country with a very high voter turnout compared to um, many other places in the world. Um, uh, so, uh, and this question is for you, Chavez. So, uh, oh, sorry, for you, Marianne. <laughs> uh, how does inequality and unemployment affect the youth in South Africa? Um, and uh, was uh, youth inequality addressed at all in this election campaign? Uh, thank you. Um, I think that, I mean, uh, just begin with the main critical issue for, for the youth in particular, and that is the extreme high level of unemployment um, among people between 15 and 24 to 30. Um, and I think the latest number I saw was 55% between on the age group of 15 to 24. So obviously that, that is really a key challenge and, and kind of a, also a manifestation of, of it persistent inequality. Uh, in South Africa. Um, and I think that uh, uh, for youth as particular or as any group, um, inequality affects issues around education, access to education, the quality of education, um, access to higher education, which is I'm sure that we're going to discuss quite a lot. Um, but also in general, um, being um, uh, living conditions in general. So it, all these kind of general um, uh, in or social injustice issues that comes out that is characteristic of South Africa obviously has a major impact on youth as well. Uh, but I think for, uh, as, a, as a main issue for the election and for some of the parties to some extent, the debate that I followed at least through the media was mainly uh, about the unemployment issue. Um, and I have to say though, and I think maybe Jan, who, who was a little closer to the campaigning than I was, um, perhaps could say something to the extent where how the parties addressed it, but in terms of their policies or the manifestos, what struck me when I was reading through some of the media comments was that some of their, their, their policies around this is surprisingly vague uh, in the sense that it doesn't really address some of the broader structural adjustments that has to be done in able to, to actually create employment. Um, so, so raging from the ANC who has had this, uh, for those of you who follow this, um, this uh, public works program, which basically provides quite temporary options, but that's, which is not sustainable in the long term and, and gives kind of an, an emergency relief for not just young people, but for people, poor people in general. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't create any permanent solution. Um, the DA has a similar, similar approach. Um, the claim that it's more sustainable, I'm not so sure, in the sense that they want to offer youth one year intern or like temporary positions to get skills and being becoming employable. Um, and that, so, so, so this, uh, what struck me is quite this, this kind of um, 
policies that, that doesn't really address what is really at stake here, and that's how to create permanent jobs n for youth in particular, but also for the population in general. Uh, the general unemployment rate is 27%, the formal one. The real one is a lot higher. Um, so, so that is it's a key. I think it's a key challenge, and I think for for the government moving forward, that unless that is addressed properly, uh, I think that will continue to shape the future politics here. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, just to, for the people who don't know, the DA and the EFF are the main opposition parties. The EFF is called the Economic Freedom Fighters, and the DA is the Democratic Alliance. And the DA is um, sort of a center-right. Uh, uh, you know, market politics, uh, market economics po party. The EFF is sort of a left-wing uh, populist, uh, although they are difficult to pin down uh, at times. So, uh, just so you sort of have that reference point. Uh, yes, uh, so, Chavez, um, uh, in your estimation, uh, to what degree do you find that uh, South African youth uh, were engaged uh, in voting and uh, electoral politics in this election? Uh, do you find that they are that formal electoral politics is the sort of arena of the youth? Yeah, um, <coughs> I think uh, the recent numbers around people who registered to vote and those who eventually turned out to vote was quite disappointing, but not as scary as uh, perhaps uh, you would you would want to to assume because. Generally, in most even well-established democracies, they don't have the number of turnout that we normally would expect. Generally, people don't go out to vote. Uh, generally, even those who've registered sometimes really don't go out to vote. So um, the numbers were really terrible. And I think it cost, uh, to a large extent, the economic freedom fighters who bank largely on the youth vote. I think that is why in our estimation in the last election when they had just been formed eight months ago, they just went from zero to uh, 6%. Now, at the time they didn't have the entire the party machinery, they didn't have uh, uh, the, 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 the people who make sure that the vote is done properly in all the awards. So this time they had the party machinery, they had the funding, they had everything. So you'd have expected that they would have done significantly higher than they actually eventually got. So I think the number of votes uh, of young people who voted really had a much more effect on them. But I also think that uh, on, the, on the other side of that is the fact that these elections were perhaps even more than elections of the past, much more politically and ideologically contested because a lot of people went out to vote because this, this parliament is going to deliberate on what is going to be a fundamental shift in South African politics. Uh, that is the discussion around uh, the, uh, the, the land issue, the, the changing of the, of the property clause in the constitution. So I think that um, on the one hand, one, while people didn't come to vote, on the other hand, those who really feel uh, that there's a lot at stake did come out to vote and the voting patterns around which party people eventually went to shows that. Unfortunately, I think uh, most of the students um, who have been very critical voices in the, uh, I mean, upsage of uh, radical politics at least, um, did go 
either to the ANC and to the EFF. I say this because if you look at the number of people, the number of young people in the parliamentary list, it's significantly higher this time than in previous uh, outcomes of the elections. The ANC has fielded a lot, or at least significant number of uh, Fees Must Fall uh, activists. So too has the EFF. The DA itself, which is the second biggest opposition party, has also fielded more young people. So I think these elections have, um, on the one hand, disappointed insofar as people participated in elections. But if you look at the composition of South African Parliament right now, more young people are in both the ruling party, the second biggest party, as well as the third biggest party, which to me is quite encouraging. Is is something that really we could uh, the the country could build on. Yes, I, I completely agree because I think also you, you, you see the same pattern in the, the const constitution now of the uh, different uh, provincial administrations where you have more young people coming in. But I think you also, I, I also agree in a way that, that it was very much the EFF that in a way lost out on, on the youth vote. When I was there for about three years ago, there was much more enthusiasm about the EFF amongst youngsters. Whilst now, maybe the... Um, the analysis of what the EFF stands for, and of course, there have been a number of corruption scandals that have also tainted and come in on that on that on Malema and the head, heads of of, of of the EFF. So, so I think I think you um, that that is an issue, and the land issue I think is also one of an interesting question because um, when I was there just before Easter, I, I was visiting. Um, communities in, in the greater Etiquene, sort of Durban area. And one of the interesting things there was that neither the ANC nor EFF nor Inkata Freedom Party, which was the local traditional Isizulu party, had very much support amongst the, the poor of the poor. They had lost any faith in, in, the, in the politicians. And, and, and that was quite striking because very much of the land discussion on the national level has been about white farmers. And you, you even saw that the Democratic Alliance have, has probably lost 2% of their vote to the extreme right-wing Freedom Front, which picked up quite a few new seats. But for many of the poor people in South Africa, the, the fight isn't for those lands in the countryside. It's, it's the land around the cities. It's the, it's the flatlands that aren't occupied. It's, it's the, it's the industrial areas, it's the old military bases around Cape Town. And, and I think you're going to have very interesting discussions in Parliament going forward. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, I just also wanted to comment on the, what you said about the, the voting, the youth vote, and, and, and despite the voting turnout, the, the, there is some encouraging you know, signs here. And I just also wanted to kind of remind ourselves that, that it's not uncommon that the turnout among youth is lower uh, to some extent. So that's one thing. So youth does politics in different ways. So we, we just also have to remember that it doesn't necessarily, some, some kind of media comments were saying, you know, the youth is apathetic, they don't care about politics, which everyone who's been in South Africa know is quite the opposite. In a sense, it's really a question about where we look for politics and the kinds of engagements that youth are involved in. So, so just kind of, so I'm, I think in that sense we, we still have, have grounds to be optimistic <laughs> in terms of South African democracy. Um, 
and also coming from that in terms of the land struggle and the urban struggles that I have been working on for many years. Um, and one of the, the striking things, and, 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 and also for words, for good and bad, I suppose, um, are very much involved in some of these struggles are also the youth, ma mainly people under the age of 30. Uh, both men and women playing slightly different roles, but, but it's quite a, also a space of politics where the younger generations are, are kind of claiming a space. Um, and there's all sorts of discussions around what kind of politics that is. But, but that is also very much like a youth-driven process to many, in, in many respects. Yeah, I, mean, I think um, it's an interesting point, and I think um, uh, it's a, I'm wondering if, if if this means that South Africa is sort of is, is it becoming like a, a country like other democracies, where, for example, the United States, where you have a low vo voter turnout perpetually, um, or is this a phenomenon now? Do you think the voter turnout will go up again in the future? Um, I think this is a question for all three of you. You can answer. Uh, I mean, do you think uh, do you think that um, and, and the second question is kind of why do you think that, the, that they're especially talking about that, that there is now like a quite a ideologically contested battles. I mean, you've got land reform is coming up. It's going to be uh, decided on, uh, you know, welfare programs. The whole economic system is probably going to be decided on for the next 20 years. And yet um, there's such a low enthusiasm to some degree compared to what it was 20 years ago. Uh, for uh, I was looking at the statistics, and uh, almost uh, even though South Africa's population has tripled, uh, it's ne not that many more people are voting in total numbers than there was back then in 1994. So it's obviously it was a special election because it was the first one. But but do you think that it will now stay low forever, or do you think that is this if they find politicians that maybe they trust in? If the politicians gain credibility, that there will be a higher vote to turnout, or alternatively, why do you think the vote to turnout is so low? I guess we can start with you. And um, okay, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's a kind of a, it, it's you, you can say quite a lot about that. Then some of it has to be be I suppose a little bit normative, I suppose. Um, I I believe that voting is a key institution of democracy, and I think that most South Africans still. Um, have faith in the democracy, and voting is one mechanism of exercising that democratic right. Um, South African politics has been removed from, in the lack of a better word, the grassroots for a long time now. Um, and if this is really a question about the legitimacy of, of, the, of the political system, or the, the kind of electoral system in a way. Um, there are ways of restoring that legitimacy and that trust. Obviously, that has a lot to do with how the, the major political parties will develop, to what extent they are able to rebuild that trust. Um, there is a certain elitism in, in, in party politics in South Africa that is, is, is challenging. So the question is whether there is space for a, kind of a more grounded, stronger local organizations that can emerge and that can kind of rebuild the kinds of structures that was there 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Um, whether you need, which I know some people would say that the only way to, to kind of revitalize uh, party politics is to get a much more viable left alternative, which is, has been a discussion for 20 years as well, to what extent, and whether that will come and whether that will be, you know, grounded in the, in the labor unions or other kinds of movements and, and yeah. So, but, but I think that there are, there are always ways of 
of revitalizing also kind of a party political system. Uh, then there's a question, so, th so of course that might be what we would like to see rather than what will happen. Um, but I think that we have to remember that that also kind of plays together with other kinds of institutional setups and, and spaces of politics. And as I said earlier, this, there's a dynamic between different practices of, of, of politics here, and voting is just one part of that. So, so I think those has to, has to play kind of together as well. But then, of course, other people are saying that what we are really seeing now is just an ordinary maturing of party politics and a kind of in a democratic society, that it will kind of, it's, it's just normalizing in a way. Um, I'm not so sure, and I think if, 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 if we are satisfied with 66% turnout, then I would like to, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I, I'm not so sure if that is a very good scenario for the future, at least. Okay, I would like to first maybe talk a bit about the, which I think has come out recently as well, um, the issue about the grounding of left politics in South Africa. You know, Ronnie Castles, and, uh, who's the former Minister of Intelligence in South Africa, uh, a well-known freedom fighter for the ANC, has been having a polemic discussion on the Daily Maverick with uh, Jeremy Cronin, which he was the Deputy Secretary of the South African Communist Party. And I've heard this argument punted around for a while that the South Africa doesn't have a good, perhaps uh, well-reaching uh, left uh, poli uh, poli political party which could uh, uh, herald a new era and you know, break the, this, the deadlock in the political arena. And I think, uh, I mean, with all due respect, it's kind of a misplaced notion. Why do I say this? One, because Presently in the parliament today, at least I would estimate 70 to 80 percent of the of the political parties there are left oriented, center left to perhaps uh, uh, to an extent you do want to call extreme to the extreme. There are only a few parties to the right that would be the, uh, that would be the Freedom Front Plus and the Christian what what and you know uh, with the democratic allowance a little bit to the center. So it's. Left politics have always defined South African politics in general. ANC itself is centered at least to the left a bit, you know, even though you would say they do drive market-driven uh, 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 market policies and stuff, but at least in its body politics, it's a party that is constituted by uh, the South African Communist Party, South Afri uh, the COSAT, the Congress of South African Trade Unions, which are left policy uh, organizations. The ANC itself, historically, it's always been oriented to the left. So I think um, maybe that really doesn't talk to the issues at best. Also, there has been a new political party which was contesting the elections precisely on the left platform on the, on the platform that it's a workers' party, which has formed by NUMSA, which is a breakaway from COSATU, which is the biggest labor federation in South Africa. It managed to get as much as uh, close to 20,000 votes, which is less than 1% of the, of, the, of the votes. So it says to me that discussion is being put in the wrong place. The issue is not, was perhaps uh, I could add this, the EFF is the most radical left-oriented party 
Of course, we may have different views about how to pin it, but at least it's politics, it's left politics around land, around economy, and around all those things. So I think um, the discussion which is being coalescing around maybe to revitalize people's interest in this democracy, we need a left party. I think to me, what needs more than just the left party, the, uh, sorry, the uh, leftist oriented party is, 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 is to appreciate the importance of organizations. Because I think these elections, what they taught us was that you can't have book and armchair revolutionaries who sit, who sit around studying Marx and all those classics and go on with uh, some pure moralist position to say, vote for us. What needs to happen in South Africa is that if any move has got to go towards revitalizing people's interest in politics, in the elections, then much more interest must be put around how do you build organizations with capacity to drive the electoral, uh, uh, the electoral um, uh, campaigns, but also organizations who are able to sustain themselves because most of them just fizzle out with time. Most of them do not have the capacity to run in, uh, at the provincial and national levels. Most of them do not even have capacity to run a political party itself. So I think uh, it's an interesting discussion, the issue about uh, the left position and whether we need to, uh, if we to emerge a left party, it would revitalize politics. Uh, as I've said, uh, it's a much needed discussion, but I think it's a misplaced uh, notion. South Africa already has a very rich left-oriented uh, politics. The fees must fall movement, if you look at it, all of the demands, all of the issues that were raised there, all of them were to the left, whether it's on land, whether it's in decolonization, whether it's on fees, and all of those things. So the whole country, in fact, I always argue that South Africa is one country where most of its politics is much more radical than you would expect. Uh, in fact, in, to most of these other Southern African countries, most of its politics are oriented to, and also I think the influence of um, organizations like the Communist Party, like uh, COSATU, over a period of time, which organizations have been in, uh, in existence for a while, have been very influential in, in, in influencing the type of body politics that is there. But maybe just last bit on the, on the issue about the, whether people who are, <coughs> whether the, um, there is a case to be made that in the future would have much more bigger. I think for me, we must give it, it's more about what are the issues that would want people to be interested to vote. Because clearly, the people who are not coming to the vote is because they're despondent, they've lost interest. They think that the ANC is gonna win. They think the ANC is corrupt, it's not gonna change. I think what needs to be put firmly on the table and on the agenda of the national politics is a party or perhaps are the issues that are going to fundamentally shift the, the highly unequal levels, uh, racialized as well in South Africa, unemployment. So you need to be able to, to fashion those issues, have the right words, have the right politics, so that then people feel there's going to be change. Because what they feel now is just recycling themselves, the political parties, it's almost a given, the ANC is going to win, there's going to recycle their, they are corrupt leaders, so that drives people out of the electoral process and they feel that they are powerless to change anything. I, I think I'm, I'm, I must say that when the Freeze Us Fall movement started, I suddenly got a sort of aha experience and 
Oi, at last, at last, after 20 years, the youth are actually starting to, to do something and are, are actually taking, taking action, which, which is sort of, I must say, I've been, I've been waiting for, for it because there was sort of a, a downtown time after 1995, 94. Um, and I, I'm actually not, um, not very pessimistic about um, the development of democracy. Sort of, there has been actually just the fact that they managed to stop Jacob Zuma and get him out of power shows that certain institutions in South Africa work, that courts, at least the constitutional court works, the, um, the press, at least sections of the press, actually do work, they, they're critical. Um, parts of civil society, anti-corruption is, is active. Um, some, of the some of the trade unions are also very active. So you have, in a way, a lot of positive movements. And, and I think it's important, um, that South African politics, sort of the, the, the arena where maybe democracy failed in, in the way in the Zuma years was actually parliament. Apart from the EFF, which made a hell of a noise and, and some very colorful protests, parliament did relatively little. But at the same time, one could say that other institutions took up, took up the fight. And, and I think it's, it, what, going forward, one of the important things was is a, that people have to have a restored faith in certain institutions, especially like the National Prosecuting Authority, the people, the police, the people in a way who, who actually bring criminals, corrupt people to court. Um, and it was interesting to see in, like in the Durban context where the ANC has been dominating the municipal system in Durban for all the years. And just after the elections, the mayor and half the councillors were arrested on corruption and money laundering charges. And that sort of happened after the elections because they suddenly weren't, weren't in a strong, strong position anymore. And it's interesting to see in a way how the landless fight in, in, in Durban, they, don't, they, don't, they have lost their trust in, in the elected officials, but they use the courts. They go directly to the courts and get the courts to allow them to stay on land that they have occupied. And, and I think you'll have lots more of fights like that going forward. You'll have umpteen conflicts and court cases, and it's gonna be, it's gonna be messy. And, and at the same time, you're also going to have more and more debate. You're going to have to have more and more debate, especially on the left, of the roles of trade unions. You know, sort of Eskim, which is the electricity suppliers in, in South Africa, they need to be overhauled Incredibly, they probably have 20, 30,000 too many workers. But how do you dismiss workers who are organized in the same trade unions that are supporters of the ANC? The, the education system needs to be revived. But one of the sort of hindrances to a lot of revisions there are probably some of the trade unions. So you're gonna have lots of discussions and that's in a way what you need. And that's what's in a way been lacking for so many years. Yeah, um, I am gonna, I think we're gonna move over to student politics since uh, we started talking about fees post fall stuff. I think uh, it's funny because um, yeah, definitely I think there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in South Africa with, with uh, occupations of land. I don't know if you know, if you've heard about Reclaim the City in Cape Town. They, they have actually taken over like a bowling green in the middle of the city <laughs> and, uh, and occupied it for, uh, for uh, 
uh, basically for the, um, the domestic workers that are working in the rich people's houses in this rich area. They've taken this golden green and basically said there's going to be housing for these particular workers so they don't have to travel like an hour and a half every day. And then there's a Durban Shack Dwellers movement, which is also very big in Durban. It's been going for like 10 years. So it's, I think, I mean, I agree. I think there's like a lot happening on that grassroots level. And South Africa has, has uh, probably the most active civil society I've seen in any country, uh, at least that I know. Uh, so it's uh, very healthy. Um, but uh, yeah, so, so my... Um, so uh, my sort of engagement with the student process was that I was uh, I was actually a lecturer uh, and a student at UCT University of Cape Town. Uh, I was there for I was a master's student the two years before it happened, and then I took um, parental leave and started my PhD in lecturing after that. Um, so it was a very interesting experience for me because I was actually part of a left-wing organization, student organization, in the two years prior to the to the protests. And it was uh, very difficult to mobilize people, very difficult to get people going with like outsourcing issues that we're working on and, and trying to like, create like uh, broader left-wing politics. And then uh, there was a case in, I think it was 2014, where they started protesting, um, at least this was at UCT, uh, a statue uh, by, uh, of Cecil John Rhodes. And, uh, and uh, one student, he was throwing poo at the statue which is a very sort of, it become a very popular form of protest in South Africa to show disdain. And, uh, and around that became this whole debate about what should an African university look like and you should definitely not have, you know, statues of uh, genocideers uh, uh, on campus, uh, as Rhodes was. And, uh, and it uh, energized the student population in, the, in a way that was uh, pretty amazing to see compared to what I've seen before. So. And, uh, but what was interesting as well was that I found that they, it brought the students into uh, the other left-wing politics. So the students that had formerly not cared so much maybe about outsourcing or about workers' conditions on campus, suddenly were brought into this. And UCT students who have never really been so engaged in fees protests as, for example, students in other South African universities suddenly cared about fees. So it was a, quite an interesting shift I found, at least from my experience. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, for an overview of the student protests, in 2014 they broke out. It started with uh, decolonization and anti-outsourcing uh, in most universities. And then they started protesting uh, the fee structure and that people had to pay for universities. And in 2015 and in 2016, I think, they closed down almost every major university in South Africa for at least two months, I think, or so. Uh, so and uh, it was a very yeah, exciting time. So, um, so uh, as well as a question <laughs> or a comment maybe, but uh, we can, uh, uh, Chavez, the first question here was for you. So uh, what is your take on the, the youth um, engagement in student politics? Uh, and how do you see the idea of decolonization as part of these movements? I'll just say also add just one bit, which I think is important to provide proper context to why the decolonization, the issue around the Fresno Squad movement became heightened as it was, as you correctly observed. I think uh, <coughs> it's important to say that South Africa is one of the most unequal countries in the world. 
and uh, the poverty rate, uh, sorry, the unemployment rate is what uh, Miriam has already just spoken about. So those conditions and also those levels of inequality are racialized. That's the second thing, especially in Cape Town. I remember when I was working for the Melon Guardian, I had not been, I had not seen something like this. They crossed the streets, blacks literally, I mean, quarantined in uh, what appears like uh, places that shouldn't even, animals shouldn't live. And then just cross the streets, there is almost a level of opulence you had not seen. So those are the conditions that had been going on for years. Um, and those conditions, to be fair, are not really created by the ANC, as some in the liberal press would like to present. They would like to condemn, uh, to rather to coalesce everything into, no, it's a problem of misgovernance, it's a problem of corruption. Fair and square, that, problems, uh, that is a problem of a society. But I think also the structural issues around uh, who owns the, the country's economy and how willing are they to share and distribute that kind of, uh, of, uh, of wealth that they have. Of course, the state must play a role, but there's been resistance from the ruling uh, class. I don't want to say uh, a party, the ruling class, which in the main is mostly white and mostly foreign. So those conditions, they were always going to be, were always going to be the spark that would lead to a kind of a youth uprising, as you would uh, perhaps would like to christen it. So, and that youth uprising perfectly could have only started at the universities because that's where the young people who are coming from, Kaili, Chakukule, to all these uh, places which are full of, uh, uh, I mean, the epitome of inequality, epitome of poverty, then they go to these spaces. These spaces at the universities, UCT, are predominantly uh, for rich people, white people, and for people who have got, uh, who can afford. And now, once you, when you get into those spaces, you are now trying to find identity. You are trying to feel part of this institution. But the institution, by its make and otherwise, is not meant for those poor souls. Now, I think those sharpening of those contradictions at that level of the institution and the fact that people go to the, to the institution, meet all these rich kids, go back to the home, they don't have a place to stay, they struggle with transport, they come to school, they don't have food, they see their colleagues, the children of the black middle class that were a product of the 1994 uh, democratic breakthrough, they are living large, uh, things are just fine for them. They see these white kids who come mostly from African background, I mean, life is, so those contradictions happening at the level of the institutions were sharpened by a much more radicalizing country, uh, especially led by the ANC clique of Julius Malema at the time, which was putting all those uncomfortable issues to the table and uncompromisingly so. Of course it was uncomfortable to some people, but then those things were germinating a seed, which burst out from 2014, like 15 going up. And uh, my brother, uh, who was in the leading SRC of the University of Johannesburg, was at the heart of it when it started. And when I was trying to probe around what were the sparks that led to this kind of uh, a sudden, you know, unexpected uh, 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 
uprising, for lack of a better word, as you correctly observe, you had been trying for a while to mobilize them around all these things, uh, but it had been failing. All of a sudden, then it, it, it suddenly burst like that. And I think uh, it's clear to me from the responses I got from him and from others was that uh, I think that uh, it was only going to be a matter of time when you have that level of inequality in South Africa. Secondly, I think that there were a lot of anti unresolved issues of the past that were plastered over in 1994. And I think I personally hold the view that um, most of the things that were plastered over that, I mean, the leadership of the ANC were right to give uh, the new, the country a chance to believe that the, the white community will share in this country's wealth. They'll be willing to work with the government to resolve not just issues of land, but to resolve issues of, of, of unemployment and stuff like that. Um, in, 2000, in 2017 or 18, Tabombegi wrote one of, in one of his letters. He wrote and said, one of the biggest problems structurally in South Africa, which is going to always be a problem and will be exploited and will lead to instability in this country, is the refusal by some of the wealthy white owners of the economy to invest back into the economy. And one of these guys uh, eventually went on an interview with Power FM, um, where he admitted that during Tabombegi's years, where, by the way, the government literally loosened the economy to ensure to at least try to see our white counterparts play a role, reinvest in this economy, let's build this thing together. They refused. And they do not want to acknowledge, especially those South African whites, they do not want to acknowledge that they also play a role in the kind of mess that led to, 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 to the, to, to the Fismas Fall movement, which also continuously leads to all of these protests you see around South Africa everywhere, whether it's service delivery, whether it's land and all those things. There is, to me, at least a view that there has not been a reconciling of all these two historically opposing uh, uh, sides of South Africa. One led at least by the black ANC government and the other which I think is mostly, I mean, dominated by the Africana uh, white uh, um, counterparts, uh, which have not really played a role in terms of uh, transforming the economy, reinvesting in the economy. In fact, uh, they raised this uh, in, in the youth politics and youth circles, especially in the Thismas Fall movement, that even though we do not agree with the neoliberal policies of the ANC of Tabombegi's time, but at least you can kind of understand, which was to say, we are going to open the economy, play your role. They refused to play. They kept their money liquid form. They were ready to invest anywhere else in the world except South Africa. Now those things led over a period of time to the levels of inequality we see, to the levels of, of employment that we see. But also that secondly, there hasn't been from the part of those who had benefited previously an acknowledgement about the problems of apartheid or at least an ability to want to share, especially the land. Because now the biggest issue, whether it's in the student movement, even outside of the student movement, is the issue of sharing of the land. And you can see even in the media spaces and all the strategic uh, uh, organizations they control, they deny that they want to make all of the problems of Africa to be about Jacob Zuma and corruption and everything, which I agree is true. But also I feel that there hasn't been as much spotlight to the, to the structural issues that the ANC must be condemned for having failed to address through the power of the state. But I also think that the Fismas Fall movement 
whether it was raising issues of, of, of the national anthem, for example, was one of the things that they were saying during the Christmas fall movement was the issue of land, issue of outsourcing, which is partly to blame the government that the neoliberal policies opened up everything. But the second thing was the, 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 the national anthem. The national anthem still has a part of the African uh, uh, beat that historically to the black majority was a, a, a song sang by the African groups against the blacks when they were fighting in the liberation struggle. And they've raised this to say, let's change that because it's uncomfortable to us. It's a new dawn, it's a new South Africa. The African, at least most of them, refused to participate in this process of transforming South Africa. They refused to change the, the, the at least in, in the majority of cases, they, they refused to participate in changing the, the national anthem. Uh, uh, the decolonization also talks about um, where are those spaces where we can live together? What has happened is that apartheid has moved from the political segregation, marital and otherwise, to the economic issue, wherein people are literally removed from certain spaces on the basis of whether or not they've got money, which is why Cape Town is, the, is, is, is like this today, where you have uh, black poverty and white wealth. Now, most of these people, by the way, that we blame uh, in places of Cape Town, Deben, Johannesburg, for whatever, are not even South Africans. They are living abroad, here in Europe, everywhere. They've got large chunks of land that they are not willing to share with the government. And when they, that land is supposed to be bought, the prices are ridiculous to a point that it's unable for the government to purchase those land. Now, all those things together led to the crisis, uh, to the youth movement of, of, uh, of 2015, which started at university. But if we are able to analyze problem, it has spread beyond university, was the EFF is really in the main taking all those demands of uh, decolonization into formal national politics. So I think that uh, until we deal with all the structural issues and also the government corruption and inability to transform the economy, another uh, kind of youth uprising maybe not happening at a national scale now uh, could, be, could be in the, in the offing in the not so distant future. Yeah, uh, I, I very much agree. Uh, I think um, there's a saying, uh, I don't know who said it, but uh, that uh, apartheid was like was the scaffolding, but capitalism was the house. Uh, and when they built the house, they didn't need the scaffolding anymore. Um, I mean, I can disagree about that or agree. <laughs> uh, but, but I think there's definitely some truth, definitely a lot of truth to that. And you can see that the, the spatial segregation of, for example, Cape Town has not changed at all. Uh, or very little, at least, since apartheid. Um, uh, and, uh, and it's interesting also this, um, at least at the University of Cape Town, this sort of lack of um, dealing with these issues when they come up in their milder forms. So uh, at the University of Cape Town, at least, you have the Mamdani affair, which was when a black academic was excluded upon his race. It was in 1991, I think. Then you have the... Um, no, sorry, the Mafeji affair, 91. Then you have the Mamdani affair. He tried to uh, reform the curriculum uh, to make it more Africanist. Uh, and then he, he was booted from the university. So you have all this, like, build-up, you know, the, the milder forms of the same, um, uh, basically the same decolonizing discourse, saying, let's change things, let's change things. And only when it uh, blows up, like this, just things actually change. And that was quite fun to see as well, like how much suddenly 
you know, these professors at UCT were now ready to change the curriculum and having these listening sessions and there was all kinds of things. So, um, yeah. <coughs> um, so the next question is for you, Mariana. The, uh, did you find in your work um, uh, that, um, or in your work, have you found that youth in general outside of the university uh, were interested in, in the student movements? Were they engaged in it? And, and, and did students or did young people outside of the university um, uh, also talk about decolonization in maybe not in those terms, but in other terms? I'm not sure if I can say much about my, my, um, about how youth engages or with what happens at UCT, I want to let, let me just take another spin on it uh, to start over. Because um, I do think that, so so I think the Fees Must Fall and the Rose Must Fall movement, and for, for UCT, the Rose Must Fall movement was, was a kind of a shattering moment in many ways. Um, and it did, I remember when I, when I first was at UCT, 2000, I think. Um, there was e even in 2000 there was these huge discussions around the lack of transformation at UCT compared to some of the other uh, universities, even in the Western Cape. Um, and interestingly, some of the arguments I remember from that time was that because UCT positioned themselves as fairly liberal during apartheid, it didn't force them to make changes as quickly as some of the other institutions. You guys from South Africa might correct me on this, but I just remember that now, that that was a discussion um, in about 15 or almost 20 years ago, actually. So it also says something about the contextual nature of university politics, so, just, so, that, so that's also one part of it. So, so, so the dynamics around WITS and UCT have like pl also played a slightly different, even though it is really interesting, as you say, it was like one of the first national protest movements you know, in, in post-apartheid era. Although, I have to say though, working on urban social movements, there were some efforts in the year 2000 around landless movements and housing movements that you could say also had a national character, but I'll, I'll leave it at that. Youth outside university politics, and I think this is important. We need to remember that um, university, student politics is, is important. Youth politics is a lot more than university politics as well. And going back to where I started, I think we need to, to to remind ourselves that, that the issues that was picked up by the students are issues that concern youth elsewhere. Uh, and in particular, as you talked about, the, the, the efforts to combine or see, see the kind of the struggle across, not just about student politics, but about our parents and our, you know, the workers who are, are actually trying to feed us, you know, all these things. So that is an important dynamic. So in the areas that I've been working, I have to uh, just make disclaimer, I haven't worked on, on, on youth specifically, but I've been working with quite a lot of young activists within the, the organizations I worked with. And they are, of course, they also followed what was happening and they started discussing issues around identity and the community I work in is quite mixed racially, colored black. Um, and, having th and there was a lot of discussions around 2013, 14, 15 and in particular 15, I think, just around the, the student politics, um, that obviously was inspired by some of the things they saw were happening. Um, but they are not, not necessarily linked to the student politics as such. 
so in that sense, there is definitely a challenge. Now, and, and I think you guys have been very involved in it as well. Um, however, kind of, um, however much we, we really want to see those alliances developing and strengthening, it's really challenging to keep them working over time. So I think one of the challenges is how to, how to bridge those those struggles in a way, and seeing that the student, the kind of the, the, the fees must follow some of the issues, at least initially raised by the student movement, uh, and linking those to a little bit like we have seen in, in similar efforts across trade unions and social movement unionism. How do you endure that over time, and how do you make sure that, that those two are mutually strengthening over time? And I think that is really one of the challenges, and for to do, I think one of the things to do that is exactly to try to to see how other spaces of youth politics is or isn't related to or linked or having discussions with or having spaces to meet. Um, so, that so, so that this is not kind of, uh, kind of limited to campus, campus politics, basically. Yeah, um, and, and there was, uh, as far as I know, there was some, at least in Cape Town, there was also protests at high schools um, um, about uh, particularly hair politics. So, so South African, especially private schools, has very strict, like, uniform uh, dress. And um, the basically the politics that went with, or the, the code of dress, didn't allow for the girls to have, like, natural African hair. They had to, like, straighten it and tie it up and all these things. And so um, there was, in Cape Town at least, was a couple of high schools that were really blowing up where the kids was just taken to the street and shutting down the schools because, in a similar way, uh, th this isn't an African school if you can't like, have African hair. Um, so, so I know that there were examples of where it sort of stretched outside of universities and into other educational institutions at least. Um, and um, a question for you, Jan, is um, to what extent do you think that the student movement has been able to impact uh, political decisions uh, outside or inside the campus? And how does the ANC address the issues around higher education today? I think Charlotte is probably better to answer that than me, but um, it's clear anyway that, that the initial Fees Must Fall campaign did get a victory in a way that Jacob Zuma decided to allow, uh, to allow it, uh, but he was on his way out, so it was probably a little bit of a time bomb that he, he placed in, in the pockets of, his, uh, of, the, of the people who came after him because there was nothing in place to, to actually pay out money to, to poor students. There weren't any systems in place, and there still aren't systems in place, but at least in, for example, in this year's budget, there are, there are put aside, uh, I think it was corresponding to 90 billion kroner or something that, that is put aside for paying for fees for, for poor students. But there's lots of practical issues. There's lots of residence uh, issues, um, housing, et cetera, et cetera, that, that haven't, haven't been met. And at the same time, um, so that, yes, they sort of, they did, did have a breakthrough. And that, that probably has also made it again a little bit difficult for the student movements to, to mobilize. You saw at the beginning of, of this um, academic year that there were outbreaks of protests in, in, in certain, at certain universities and certain institutions, but it, it didn't sort of take off in the same way in, as in 2015 um, because the issues were slightly narrower and, 
and weren't as easy to, to mobilize on. So that um, you always have had, had this problem in South Africa that, and, and that's, this is from, from the sort of protests in, in the 80s and, and, and early 90s, you know, that very quickly in South Africa, you get to sort of nitty gritty administrative issues. Just you'll, you'll, you'll have a breakthrough at some level, but then you have to administer it. You have to know, find out how, how, how how's this change going to take place? What institutional changes are you going to do? And very often when you get down to that level, things often peter out or somebody in the ANC takes, <laughs> takes control. Well, uh, the, I think, as I said, I think uh, the EFF, the emergence of the EFF, um, the ANC itself, to a large extent, is a product of a, of a seismic shift into just students' issues, into national issues. If you look at the platform which the EFF was campaigning on, it's campaigning on almost all the issues of the Bismarck Sport Movement. Uh, was it decolonizing the national anthem, changing it from what it is, land issues, gays and lesbians, uh, uh, rights and uh, stuff. So I think the issues have shifted from just being a student's issue into a national issue that uh, has got now a national mandate from the electorate uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I can also mention that uh, I know that just after the 2016 protest or something, I think, uh, I don't know how much they increased the higher education budget with, but it was an incredible amount, like of the just um, put onto it, um, so it had that effect at least of creating, um, of uh, making uh, the government prioritize higher higher education and uh, and keeping the fees at a still at least. So, uh, but uh, I wonder if it's time for some questions now from the audience. <laughs> you had a question first. Should we take uh, several questions? Or? Uh, it's a comment. I I I I think there's lots of things that. Uh, that have been touched, I'll, I'll start with you, Mangwaba, uh, because you kept on saying uh, Africans or Boer uh, with the, I, I think one of the things we should not forget, the Jewish people are major economy people in South Africa, and they have the power which also they don't want to share. Even the people who are Muslim, they have a lot of economy uh, in South Africa. They are also not prepared to share because it, it, when you get into that game of, okay, seeing that they point to this one and then it, it's okay, they look at uh, Africans, people. Even the, the English uh, actually, because the, the union, uh, when the Africans took over, it was the union of those two nations. So it came out as Africans, but English uh, people were beneficiaries, also they were drivers of apartheid. Uh, and secondly, I think that there's lots of youth, actually, when it comes to uh, taking up issues in South Africa, it, it did not start uh, with FISMAS fall. If you go back to this 1976, it's one, uh, I think, landmark, which was not the, the beginning, but it became a national thing. And even uh, universities have done different things every now and then. It's just that 
they didn't have the same kind of momentum as there was uh, with FISMAS fall. I was also at UCT 2012-2013 when the trade, uh, the workers, we were fighting for the workers who were outsourced. And some of these people were afraid of losing their jobs, but because they had youth behind them, we were organizing the protests, uh, talking to the police and to the uh, Mr. West when he was uh, vice chancellor. So youth and, and also students have always been actually the backbone of the struggle of South Africa. And, and I think the disappointing thing is when they get to the parliament, whoever it is, because it becomes lucrative to be in the parliament and then they start to dance to a different music. And that, that is where the problem is. Maybe that is why the ANC also loses its popularity. And I like that the, the thing you said, Mangoba, by pointing out that ANC did not create apartheid to start off with. So they inherited it, but what they failed it is to build structures to make changes. And, and I, I think maybe if you go back to, I, I want just to, to take a little bite about the, the elections. For me, I, I think still elections is a, a, an easier way of fooling people to place people into parliament and then they do whatever they want. Because uh, black people are still poor in South Africa and they are getting poorer. Education has never been changed. And it's something that started actually as early as 1992, talking about this thing. In 1994, when Mandela was in parliament, there was the transformation of uh, these institutions, especially uh, the higher learning. But there has never been anything that is happening. It's just talk, talk, talk. Thank you for your very interesting uh, conversation. I actually have two questions. So. Um, the first one, uh, you mentioned a bit about it, uh, Jan, but um, uh, that the fees for the higher education um, for poor students was implemented before uh, SUMA went off. Um, but how sustainable is that? I know you mentioned something about the budget now for this year, but if there isn't economic room for it, how will it play out in the future? And also, um, as you have been discussing, that decolonizing has been a great part of the student movements as well. Um, and I know that the students mo student movements themselves has done a lot, but w which initiatives has been put into place um, higher up? Is there any reformation of curriculum or um, not just like the physical um, surroundings, but also um, within the institutions as well. Hello, everyone. I'm, my name is Johan Hermstad. I'm the director of the Norwegian Council for Africa, which is <coughs> formerly has a history, which Johan, of course, uh, intimately knows, uh, the Norwegian uh, anti-apartheid movement, uh, working in solidarity with, <coughs> with people in the struggle in, in South Africa. Um, I just want to sort of um, bring up a um, perspective on South African uh, African politics that I have um, 
grown familiar with both in um, the, I mean, we recently, the, the, the organization recently turned 50 years uh, and we had our anniversary and there was a, there was a great sense of, uh, to me, among a lot of the old activists, uh, Norwegian activists that were in the Norwegian Council for Africa uh, or for Southern Africa historically, um, they had a great sense to me of, I had a great sense of that they, they, they were kind of disappointed and kind of personally disappointed really on behalf of their own solidarity with, with uh, uh, a political movement and particularly a political party, the ANC, which ultimately in, in their and perhaps widely in our point, in our perspective has, has failed to deliver on, uh, on rights and, and development as they promised to, uh, in a post-apartheid uh, South Africa. Now, um, I mean, of course, it's, it's ironic in itself for Norwegian, for white Norwegians to feel disappointed by a political uh, government in South Africa. Um, but but uh, um, I think perhaps in, I mean, um, uh, there is a failure. I, I'm going to sort of ask you, what do, what do you think we're doing wrong in our, like, in our, general perception of South African politics, because I think it, there's a tendency for us to think that, uh, well, first we had Rhodes Must Fall, which, which moved into fall, uh, Peace Must Fall, and then there was a new initiative, which perhaps according to a Norwegian narrative would be completely uh, natural, which is uh, the evolution of the Zuma Must Fall movement, which in a Norwegian narrative might seem very natural uh, as a continuation of the two former, but it wasn't. It was a completely different movement. And why was that? I mean, how, what's the disconnect, you know, um, between uh, our ability to, or our tendency to understand that this is all due to the, 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 per, like the, the, the structural policies that are being addressed by these student movements do not necessarily translate into uh, a political uh, movement to topple uh, the, in our, in our understanding, uh, has to be completely hated political leader, which is corrupt and all, all of this, right? right? I mean, how, how, what's the disconnect here that, that, that a Norwegian narrative doesn't capture? Uh, and not least, I mean, um, we celebrate, and we celebrated this year even, uh, Student Peace Prize winner, Fasia Hassan, uh, uh, that as, as I hold, uh, is one of the like they they, they are contributing to the to the student peace prize um, sort of system, um, and she is she was one of the leaders of the peace must fall movement, right? She was pushing for, uh, policies that were challenging the ANC quite quite starkly um, and radically, but uh, in this election that we are where we have just been discussing, she was elected in the provincial government for the ANC. Uh, let me sort of repeat, what is it here that the sort of Norwegian narrative, which is tending to, to sort of uh, always leaning towards the electoral uh, channel for democracy and for political change, uh, um, what is the disconnect that we're making? What, what, are, what are we missing here? Why is it possible to be such a stark 
um, protester against the, the ANC government and still condone it uh, in, in so many ways? Uh, I think, uh, I'm not, sorry, may, maybe they can go much deeper into your questions. I just wanna have just one slight bite to the quite loaded question you, you put up. Um, I think uh, it's fair, I was there, I could hear all of those disappointments from so many of the people who invested a lot of their time, resources and otherwise, believing that South Africa must work. And to them, they said they wanted South Africa to work because to defeat the racist notion that a black government could not take care of Africa's biggest economy. So therefore, there's a lot of personal attachment that they really wanted, everyone, I guess, not just in Norway, wanted South Africa to work. But I also am getting frustrated with the narrative that is coming out of South Africa that is not so nuanced and is to appreciate how the challenges South Africa faces are multifaceted. If you go to South Africa today, maybe not even South Africa, even outside the world, you will, they will tell you South Africa's problem is Zuma corruption. And that's the dominating view about South Africa. Now, I'm not gonna sit here and say that Zuma's corruption was not a problem. In fact, in my circles, we always say, you see, you cannot, and um, maybe we use very offensive words, but we always say, you know, the mistake the ANC was to take a rural peasant and put him into power, and then he behaved exactly like a rural um, And you know, the low cost of sophistication in how he was uh, managing the state, the petty theft, it defocused a country that was in the process of revolution, that is in the process of change and transformation. It defocused the country, it made, it pinned down all problems to a small group of Zuma and his friends corrupting the state, manipulating processes, and shifted the narrative and the discussion to be about, you see now, the problem is that the, you gave power to these people, they are corrupt. We, it was only a matter of time. It's a problem all over Africa. It's, it's, it's happening again. I mean, the whole rebel nation, I mean, it was just a colorful media hype. It was always going to end like this. It's always been like that. Now, unfortunately, even if we repeat this unwittingly, that's what the, the, the hardcore refusers of transformation in South Africa want. They want the narrative to continue to be that the problem is that the government is corrupt, is what, what, you know, they, you name it. But I'd like to provide what I consider to be a much more broader analysis that answers in part why so many of us felt disappointed with this South Africa. And I think I want to put at the center of the discussion, refusal by white society in South Africa to play a role in the transformation of that country. And it has refused. And I'll tell you why. One, currently, a so-called democratic South Africa is in court. The Nelson Mandela is taking, uh, the, uh, is taking to bend the South African flag. Sections of some white South Africa are refusing to let go of an apartheid flag that represents all that is worse about South Africa's past. They are defending it in court. As we say, they want to keep that flag. They put it everywhere in their small corners in those farms. That's the first thing of showing how far they refuse to come to the part. The second thing is they still sing that offensive th anthem and defend it vehemently, privately and publicly. Thirdly, there's the issue of the land. Um, I mean, the statistics are kind of 
quite difficult to pin down. But I know that, uh, if I recall very well, in 2013, I was working for the Melon Guardian, and we were doing, and my special focus was on land, because it was 100 years since the 1913 Act. One of the things that I could realize about the land was that the problem that we're talking about is of, of settlement, a problem of, uh, of uh, distribution of land, a problem of agriculture, you name it, all to a large extent centered around who controls the land. And the land is controlled by about 30,000 South African white families, most of which don't even live in South Africa. They live everywhere in Europe. They control that land, they don't want to give it up. And then they've manufactured this narrative that all these failures is because the government is, is corrupt, the government is doing this and that. They do not want to play a role in terms of saying, we are South Africans, we're all together. We started a new dawn in 1994. This is our contribution to this new South Africa. Recently now, and there's always a joke uh, that is being played, that even in 1994, at the height of Nelson Mandela's popularity, they didn't vote for him. Fellow white South Africans who should have come to the party, the country was starting anew, they didn't vote for Mandela in his own word. They didn't vote for him. They don't vote other political parties except the Democratic Alliance, which is a largely white uh, a party. They, didn't, they, they, don't, they vote along those blocks. So I feel if South Africa has got to move forward and deal with this disappointment that many of us, that we must hammer very strongly the government for its very reactionary neoliberal policies that literally moved the country 10 steps forward and 20 backwards. We must hammer very strongly the corruption and, uh, I mean, uh, and all of the patronage that the ANC has come to be known of. But equally, with equal vigor, we must say, our white counterparts in South Africa have not come to the party. They've refused to share in the land. They've refused to share in the economy. They've refused to even acknowledge uh, the wrongs of the past. When, when Tabombegi wrote a, a seminal paper on uh, in 2000, if I'm not mistaken, one of the most celebrated papers he wrote, a speech rather, when he was celebrating the constitution, he said, South Africa, a country of a two-tailed, uh, I, I cannot forget, I, I cannot forget the exact wording of the title of the speech, but it's about a tale of two nations. He was talking about one nation which is black and poor and white and wealthy. I remember the narrative in the media hammering him for being racist. The country's just come out of, a, of a apartheid. Why are you still raising race issues, you know? So you could sense that, you know, these are fellow white South Africans. Most, some of them played in a significant role in, in, in Fatra apartheid. But there are some acknowledgement that they wouldn't want to, to come through. When Desmond Tutu proposed in 2002 or 2003 the wealth tax, to say, look, in fact, the exact words, um, I mean, not, not the exact words, to paraphrase what he said, he said, um, in 1994, we, black leaders, Nelson Mandela, Jason Tutu, we held back black anger and black rage and said, look, way after we fought against each other, we still have to build this country together. We held back. And then Desmond Tutu asked, who within the white community in South Africa mobilized white people to come to the party of reconciliation. It was only the black government that spoke about reconciliation, That's, that actively played a role in talking about reconciliation. There wasn't much that I felt came out from, from now. Now, a combination of all those things led to much of the failures that happened. And the fact that this, uh, 
it's not Rupert, it's the other uh, man who's amongst the perhaps the richest in South Africa, Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer. In this interview he did with Power FM, he admits on national radio what Tabumbegi had said earlier, that we didn't invest in this economy. We kept our money in our banks because we were not sure about what is the future of this other African country. Perhaps understandably they'd seen what had happened somewhere else. So therefore, the structural failures of both the government and those who controlled the power in the economy led to the mess that we are seeing. And South Africa is the most unequal country and it's racialized and now the rainbow nation it dis is disintegrating right in front of our ears. People are voting along race lines, they're voting the EFF, which is punting a, um, a radical black nationalism. And now increasingly white people are voting uh, a right-wing uh, party, uh, Freedom Front Plus. Parties like the ANC and the DA, which are kind of seen as uh, in the center trying to build this uh, rainbow nation of different colors, are seemingly losing votes. So the issue, unless we deal with the fact that South Africa has got to acknowledge that we have not both come to the party to say we have this problem, it's inequality, it's racialized, how do we both play this game? How do we come to the party? And I guess to a small extent, that will lead to the kind of failures that we have seen. And with, by saying this, I'm not saying by any measure that we must not uh, put focus and hammer strongly the failures of the government. But in equal measure, we must not play into the hands of those people who today are inventing something called the white genocide, which doesn't happen, but is taking favor, is supported by Donald Trump now. So it, you can see the narrative is really shifting. Not so long ago, we'll have people saying, no, the problems were just that you gave a government that was corrupt, and all these things will be obscured completely from the narrative. Um, <laughs> where, where to go? <laughs> just, just very, br very briefly to the, to the first part. I, d I don't think the, the, the ANC government will rescind on their promises on on that were made in connection with Fiesbos Fall. They they might battle to implement it, but I don't think they would dare to get that sort of challenge, massive challenge again from from the student movement. Um, but when it comes to decolonizing the curriculum, there I think you probably still have a long way uh, to go. Um, more on what, um, on the sort of the, the Norwegian reaction to, to uh, the disappointment. I think, I think, the, I think Chavez has is greatly correct in the in the fact that that the majority of white people never came to the table, and that you saw it in the Truth Commission. Um, the p participation there was was very much at a, a lower level, fr mostly from police officers. The military was never never there. Business was never there, and and that has sort of in a way played on on and on sort of in in sort of in a way their attitudes to a certain extent. Um, I'm a little bit in a dis disagreement with it when it comes to the support of the parties. There's in the late, latest election there seems to have been a two percent swing or a, a certain percentage swing to the Freedom Front, but it would seem also that some whites actually voted for the ANC, believing that Ramaphosa could, can, can do something. Um, in the same ways that the Democratic Alliance also has a greater number of, of, of black voters than, than, than previously. I don't think any white voters votes for EFF, to put it, <laughs> to put it that way. Um, and, I, and I think it's also very important to, to remember that 
apartheid collapsed in, in the late 80s, early in 1990, because the white government was corrupt and incapable of solving all of the social issues which still the present government is battling to control. They sort of, sort of, de Klerk gave up apartheid. He thought he could control the process, which he didn't manage. But he thought, when he unbanned the ANC, released prisoners from, from, from Robben Island, etc., he was basically not managing to solve the massive problems, the housing problems, the unemployment problems, the education problems, which were just mounting up, and which has now been, been um, inherited by the present government. Um, I must unfortunately sort of go soon. I've got an already appointment, but I, but I think it's Im important to recognize in a way that, that going forward, it's, it's going to be terribly difficult for, for the government. And unless South Africa actually finds a, a way of talking um, and solving problems in, in parliament, you know, sort of South Africa, there comes approximately 650,000 people into the work work market every year in South Africa. To absorb that number of people, you need a growth rate of 7%, an economic growth rate of 7%. South Africa has an economic growth rate today of 1%. And so you just, just the some economic challenges of, of creating growth in South Africa are just incredible. And, and I think for a Norwegian population and for sort of people who are in solidarity with South Africa, and I think the problem a little bit for the Norwegian narrative has been in a way that we, we like little sort of s little bit simplified versions of struggle. We love we love the struggle because it's sort of out there we sort of we are a little bit of, uh, everybody here is a sort of social democratics half socialist, and we love the sort of the the struggle for freedom, but we don't accept that the struggle for freedom is messy, and has always been messy. The ANC in exile were killing each other, they were nasty, they weren't always nice people. Neither was Robben Island a nice place to be. Um, the student, Fries Must Fall, EFF supporters against ANC Youth League supporters, you know, sort of, uh, it, was, it wasn't always nice. You know, sort of, it wasn't always sort of solidaric and sort of freedom songs and dancing together and, and toy toying in the streets. And, and I think it's a little bit, there's a sort of certain Naivety, naivety in that you know, we don't understand in a way that, yes, Norwegian politics is, just like when I came to Norway 40 years ago, I couldn't understand Norwegian politics. I couldn't understand that there was differences in the political parties because I couldn't, I couldn't see them. In South Africa, we were killing each other. And, and sort of in the Norwegian politics was sort of mild. And, and I think in a way a little bit, sort of, uh, Norway, Norway is so, so simple that you just have to accept in a way that, that, that that things are messy and 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 really have to be messy because you have different opinions, you have strong strong feelings, you have have difficult problems. Um, yeah, I, th I think I think just for Jan's last point there, I think is quite accurate. I think it's this this idea that that as you say, struggle is messy and this is complex. And I think we never really even even in the 90s, we never really realized that despite that how close a lot of actors were on the South African struggle. A few additional points though. I think beyond that, there is something about the timing and the history and the geography at the time. So for Norwegians, and I think we were part like 
not just Norwegians, but for a lot of anti-apartheid activists in the West. This was more than South Africa. And I think that those frames are are kind of disappointment a little bit in the sense that this was kind of this part of this major transformation um, that, and then now finally we could see something actually moving on and working in the democratic transition despite all this messiness, managed to go into an election. So I think that also shaped a little bit our, our kind of then disappointments 10 years later. And not just about South Africa, but perhaps a little bit broader than that. But there's, th uh, there's a timing there that I think is important. And and I also have to say, though, and some of my frustration, not being part of the anti-apartheid movement, but being politically activized uh, or uh, activated by the anti-apartheid movement, as like being 15 years in 1990, is that we have a tendency to to be <laughs> pinpoint this disappointment in in personalities. Um, so, so we we're still having this headlines saying what happens to Mandela's South Africa. And it's like, what happened to South African people's South Africa? And it starts getting to bug me a little bit. <laughs> but I think that is, is, is important because that's also the way we deal with the Zuma years. We are thinking about this in very individualized, very, very personalized terms and very elitist terms. Um, and I think for in terms of the Norwegian like this narrative, we have to incorporate the messiness of the struggle, but also the messiness of ordinary politics in South Africa that, that, uh, that we cannot grasp, I suppose, as you say, about focusing on, on, on corruption or the bad government or the bad governance or the bad politics as such. Um, yeah, and there's a lot of other things, but I'll leave it at that. Uh, we were supposed to stop at uh, 7.30. You said you, you have a thing, and it's 7.30 now. I don't know, uh, yeah. <laughs> So I say thank you to the, the listeners. <laughs>